Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Eugenie Scott, a researcher on this podcast and a PhD candidate at Ulster University. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities initiative from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in a unique urban environment, Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. I'm joined today by Dr. Ian Miller, a lecturer at Ulster University, to talk a bit about infection in Belfast in the early to mid 20th century. So welcome Ian, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Eugenie. Um, so can I just ask, why was so much attention paid to mothers and infants at the start of the 20th century? Well, germs had been identified in the 19th century, but even at the start of the 20th, doctors still remained unable to cure people who were infected with so. We knew which germs caused TB and, and, and those that kind of information. But if you caught TB, there, there would be little hope for you still. So the main focus in the early 20th century was on preventing disease from spreading and preventing germs from spreading as well. Uh, so health advice um, focused on stopping germs spreading and also improving physical health to guard against infection. So much of that was done through nutritional advice and improve, improving people's diets. Um, so in the early 20th century, health visitors in Belfast called to mothers' houses to offer advice on postnatal health, nutrition, hygiene, infant management. And the main aim was to improve the health of the future generation and to help get rid of all those problems that had afflicted Victorian Belfast. If you were a working class mother, you might attend a baby's club for TV information as well. A lot of these schemes were led by respectable female groups. Some of them had strong ties to the state. So the Women's National Health Association, and that was run by Lady Aberdeen, who was married to Chief Secretary. But there was also Republican groups who viewed that a bit suspiciously and settled their own groups, such as United Irish Women and Morgan Schooled in His Ladies Committee. And there was also government legislation brought in as well, the Notification of Births Act in 1907, the Nursing Home and Midwives Act of 1929, all of which was meant to tackle infant mortality rates, which were still quite high in Belfast in the early 20s. Yeah, um, what other steps were taken to improve public health and living conditions? There was much improvements made to Belfast's physical environment. So in 1933, the Irish Times commented that crowded alleys and lanes all that was left of the picturesque but unhealthy old Belfast have been cleared away um, to make room for commercial buildings. So there's lots of um, so there's lots of stuff going on in terms of knocking down the old slum areas and replacing mm-hmm. them with more hygienic and spacious areas as well. Previous and ash pits have been replaced with flushing toilets, and that really helped to bring down typhoid fever incidences across the city. Uh, outbreaks of typhoid could now be identified because there was a disease notification or a track and trace system. Often it was a dubious milk supply, which was the cause of those problems. It's also things like cars and trams are being used so people can live outside of the city. There's no need to cram into the city centre to live uh, or to just live along the streets nearby your workplace. So there's lots going on. Yeah. Um, Was there any other ways that the public learned about health and hygiene in the early 20th century? Yeah, one initiative was the Belfast Health Week, which ran in June 1933 at Ulster Hall. And this week was intended to teach the public and people who attended about hygiene and health. It was less to do with the negative results and much more about how to live in a more positive, healthy way. There was films and lectures and exhibits as well. Visitors learned about the healthiest ways to live. The stalls set up by the Red Cross, the Institute of Hygiene, the Dental Association, Food Education Society, and many other groups as well. And at the time, briefly in the 1930s, exhibits were a really popular format of public health education. 
and introduce visitors to quite new concepts such as germs and microbes and viruses. Public health officials were turning away from just tackling urban environments, replacing faulty sewers and water closets and rivers. Their new strategy was convincing people to adopt healthy behaviours and lifestyles. And films were a brand new way of helping people to visualise how diseases emerged and cooled. And by all accounts, the health week was very popular, which maybe suggests that people in Belfast were thinking about how to live healthily and, and were quite enthusiastic about finding out how to do so. Yeah, so were the public health initiatives successful then? Well, well already by 1922, the Medical Superintendent of Health reported in his annual report that never before in the history of Belfast was this so low a death rate from almost all diseases. So combined, all these preventative methods do seem to have had a major impact in stopping infection from having the same impact which it had in the late Victorian period. Throughout the 1920s, there's occasional outbreaks, mostly of influenza. For instance, in January 1929, there's 100 influenza deaths occurred in Belfast. Four of them occur in the same family, the family of James Jackson, a well-known fish merchant. On the 26th of January, the Ulster Herald reported 100 people being ill in the infirmary. And it also lists the numbers of people who were off sick influenza as well, which does point, I, I think, to the social disruption still being caused occasionally. So there was 120 IEC men, 80 tram workers and 20 female telephone exchange workers all off sick that month. Um, but generally, from around, particularly from around the 1930s, infectious diseases don't reach epidemic proportions uh, for a very long time after that. Mm-hmm. So when were doctors actually able to cure the infectious diseases rather than just preventing them? And the first thing they invented was vaccines. And between the 1920s and 60s, vaccines appeared for diphtheria, tetanus, TB, typhus, whipping cough, influenza, yellow fever, polio, measles, mumps and rubella. And the downward trend of these disease incidences was sensational at the time. So in 1913, Emil von Berving develops effective immunisation against diphtheria. In the 1930s, it's really extensive efforts to immunise the city's children against diphtheria. There's still some public suspicion, but nonetheless, between October 36 and May 37, 4,215 children completed an immunisation course. And by 1944, when half of the city's children immunised against what was then called the destroyer of little children, or diphtheria. So by the 50s, it would be very unusual to have a diphtheria outbreak, whereas once, fairly normal in Belfast. So vaccines don't actually cure people. When was it that antibiotics emerged? Well, this is really, again, around the same period. The period 1910 to around 1960s, often called the therapeutic revolution because there's so many drugs being invented which help to cure disease for the first time. The most famous is perhaps Paul Ehrlich's magic bullet, as it was called, or salvison, which targeted the syphilis microbes in uh, a human body without actually harming the human host. That was developed in 1909. Syphilis was no curable. In the 1930s, sulfonamide drugs are developed, which helped to cure pneumonia, meningitis, gonorrhea, dysentery, but of course the most important was penicillin discovered accidentally by Alexander Fleming in 1928 and this could cure a fairly broad range of infectious diseases and news spread quickly and production really takes off during the Second World War and people begin to hear about it and there's much demand after the Second World War for penicillin to be used in kind of non-military settings. As well in 1943 another antibiotic streptomycin was discovered and that could cure tuberculosis, of course a killer disease of the Victorian period. 
so you can see there's so much going on in this period, which is really transforming our experiences of health and our relationship with contagion and infection. In 1945, medical trials took place at the Royal Victoria Hospital, and that's related to penicillin. Sufferers of bacterial endocarditis, a blood infection which settles in the heart, were injected with penicillin and were cured. The disease used to have a 100% fatality rate, but could now easily be managed with an antibiotic. And so that's just one example of the way things were changing so rapidly at the time. Yeah, so that all sounds great. Um, everyone must have been much healthier from the 1940s onwards then? Well, not really, because of course, if you don't die of one thing, such as an infection, often at a younger age, you do end up and dying instead from some other problem. And so gradually chronic lifestyle related problems began to be the main causes of death and disability as well. So we do get this idea almost already from the 1930s, we get a sense that there's a hidden epidemic of chronic health problems that is threatening to grow. So in 1937, the Belfast Superintendent of Health warned of a cancer menace in Belfast. And of course, partly this is because people were aging or living longer, but developing health problems that tend to come about um, later in life. In the, in the 1950s, lung cancer was identified as smoking related. Heart problems begin to increase. So. In the mid-1960s, the Royal Victoria Hospital heart specialist, Frank Partridge, developed a cardiac flying squad, which rushes out to help anyone suffering from a heart disease. But this is also an indication uh, of the changing kind of health problems which doctors are concerning themselves with and which people are suffering from. And incidence rates of diabetes also begin to rise dramatically uh, throughout the 20th century in Belfast, as in other places. Um, so the, the profile of diseases change and doctors call this the epidemiological transition. Um, you mentioned that we did all begin to start living a bit longer. Surely that was good? Well, quality of life becomes an issue instead. Due to the therapeutic revolution, the elderly population began to grow and continued doing so. So already in 1946, there's a Nuffield Hospital report, which warns that many elderly citizens are living in appalling housing conditions that they can't care for themselves properly. So instead of concerning themselves with dangerous infections such as tuberculosis as they had in the past. The priority shifts towards thinking about how to care for the aged and elderly. They didn't seem to be enough to just give them financial aid. Um, they needed improved living conditions and home help and all sorts of various needs. There was an estimate in this 1946 report that over 14,000 elderly people were living alone in Northern Ireland in a single room cottage or, or lodging. So we can see all this change in the disease profile bringing new concerns about the well-being of an ageing population. And particularly from the 1980s, doctors and the public begin to use terms like the quiet epidemic or the hidden epidemic or sometimes the impending crisis. And of course, you could argue that the downside of the therapeutic revolution was we get a population beginning to suffer and die from cancers, heart attacks, old age, maybe suffering from strokes and dementia. So for many people, the, the revolution in therapeutics involved a descent into health decline, disability, independence. Um, that's great, thank you. I'll just close asking what your overall thoughts are on the topic. Well, I guess we no longer suffer from infections or exposure to germs in quite the same way that we used to, at least in, in Western countries. But whether or not the benefits of that were entirely positive uh, has been much debated. That's great. That was really interesting. Thank you to Ian and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, 
as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.